thank you for having me as a guest speaker today. And also, thank you for paying me a full-time salary to be a guest speaker today. Especially thanks for that. So good to be with you. We were in Kentucky this past week. Actually, May is a crazy month. I'm gone. I didn't mean for it to happen this way, but I'm gone uh, more in May than the rest of the year <laughs> from this church. So uh, sorry for that. But we were in Kentucky last week, and one of the pictures, they have a church calendar with pictures of, of them up there. And one of the pictures was that of a goat at the front doors of the church building. So that gives you an idea of the different setting that we came from in Kentucky, where goats would greet you at the door. We have Mario Trevino, they have a goat at the church, church building door. So um, really great to be back here with you today. Um, Terry mentioned the Memorial Day event that's going on in Louisiana, and I just wanted to say this, uh, you're invited Next week's going to be a smaller crowd around here, but just I don't want you to know that uh, I've, I've just talked to people here and there as, as you've uh, come across my path, but uh, um, if you want to come, you're welcome. Just let me know, and we'll find a place for you. I don't want anybody to feel like they've been left out of that. It's not my intention to, to not invite any of you, so let me know if you're interested in that event. Uh, and if you're not interested in that event, then be here next week, please, because it's going to be a smaller group. I want to make uh, one other brief announcement before I jump into this uh, talk. So, uh, a couple of the kids around here have expressed interest and questions about baptism. And as I've thought about that and talked to the elders about it, we've decided to do a little short uh, Sunday morning class for the kids who are interested. Not that you have to get baptized, but just if you're interested in learning what baptism is about. And if it's for you, then uh, you're welcome to attend that. We're not going to start it this next week because we'll be gone or the following two, so it'll be the middle of June when we start this class. Brad Johnson will be here uh, uh, one of those Sundays, and then uh, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, we're going to have a follow-up class on what we're talking about today, on divorce and remarriage. So that's probably not very clear, but just know that there'll be a class for the kids starting in the middle of June for those who are interested in learning more about baptism and what we teach about that here. So that's my, that's my announcements. Let's, uh, let's dive into the talk. Let me open in prayer. Lord, speak to us today. You have assembled us here, speak to us, and let us know your heart and your will as we talk today. In Jesus' name, amen. I like to read uh, when I see things like soaps and shampoos and things like that. I like to read what they say on the, on the front of them because uh, what they claim to do for you is rather ambitious, uh, if you've ever noticed this. I, in Louisiana, a few months back, I was using a shampoo there uh, at my parents' place that said um, it would clarify my scalp. I wasn't sure what that meant, but after I used it, I could tell you I felt like my scalp needed further clarification, <laughs> and, uh, and that, but it said it would do that for me. But just this past week, I was staying with our friend Sarah Modgling and using, I still shampoo shamelessly when I'm at people's houses, so I was using her shampoo. Uh, and uh, it was probably the most ambitious I've ever seen. The shampoo called itself Resurrection. <laughs> That's what it said. It was, it was, it was the, you know, the, the, the broader brand was, was Bedhead, but it was the Resurrection brand. I thought, wow. And if you notice something different today, <laughs> just know it was a whole week I was up there using that, and I, I expect that something has happened for me. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, may, maybe, maybe we need to pass that around to several people here. Yes. <laughs> Resurrection communicates there's hope. You know? There's hope when there seems to be no hope, right? That's what resurrection means to us. That's the gospel we proclaim, is resurrection. I was thinking about, as I, we're going to get to divorce and remarriage, but just hang on for a second. <laughs> as I thought about this topic, I thought about the scripture in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is dealing with the wickedness, God is dealing with the wickedness of his people, and he asked the question, can a leopard change its spots? And just how would a leopard go about doing that? And then the word of the Lord says to them, neither can you change because you're so intrinsically wicked and you've lived in your wickedness for so long, you're never getting better. Nothing's ever going to be different. And that image just conveys the hopelessness of the situation. A leopard could change his spots before you could change. I bring that up today because I, when we talk about marriage and divorce, a lot of times we get sidetracked in, in details and, and, and tricky legal questions about what the, what the Scripture is actually saying. We're going to touch on that for a little bit, but, but I, w- I want to talk about the heart of things today. And what I want to say to you is that many times in our marriages, we feel that way. We feel like there's no hope. And we feel like change really cannot happen for us in our marriages. It'd be about like a leopard changing its spots. But please note, that passage was written before the resurrection. Before the resurrection of Jesus. You see, we proclaim a gospel of resurrection. And yet, if you look at statistics about divorce in the church, at least what I've seen, I don't know the most recent, but from what I've seen in the past, it seems like the, the, the statistics on divorce pretty much parallel the statistics on divorce outside the church. 40-50%, something like that, of, the, of marriages end in divorce. And so we preach that God can resurrect anything, and yet it seems like we practice the same thing that the world practices. And I want to say there's got to be a better way than that. And let me say to you before I go any further that uh, I know I'm talking to a number of you who have been divorced. I really don't even know how many of you I'm talking to who have been divorced. But I want you to know that my message today is not meant to condemn you. And my message today is not meant to say to you that you are less than as a Christian. In fact, I want to say the opposite to you. Now, I don't know your situation. You may need to do some repenting, depending on your situation. Sometimes things are beyond your control, and you really can't help it. Sometimes things may have been in your control, and you did some things that you shouldn't have done. Well, you repent of that, and you, and, and you turn your heart back to God. But you're not forever marked. It's not the unforgivable sin, and you're not forever less than as a Christian. I want to say that up front, okay? Just keep that in mind. When we see these statistics about what's happening with with divorce in the church, sometimes what we say, probably what I would have said in my past, is that, well, people just don't care what the Bible says. That's partially true. But there's a deeper reason why people don't care what the Bible says. And that's what we want to get into today. It's not just that we've misunderstood the Bible or people have decided, well, whatever it says, I'm not going to obey it. It's that we've misunderstood the very heart of Jesus. We've misunderstood what the kingdom of God was meant to do, what it meant to bring into our world. And that's actually in our passage today that was, was read this morning. And I want to show you that as we go forward. But, but in that light, I want to start 
at the end of the passage. I'm not going to put the whole thing up there in front of you today, but, but we're going to start at the end with this strange passage about the eunuch, or eunuchs, at the end of, the, of this section. And Jesus says at the end of that, there, uh, uh, let the one who can receive it, receive it. How many of you, when you, when you heard that read this morning, thought, I can't receive it because <laughs> I didn't understand it? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I want to try to help you receive a little bit of it today. I'm just going to start here to kind of get us a, a feel for what's at the center of things and then move back. The disciples said to Jesus, after hearing what he says about divorce, they said, if that's the way it is, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. I can't take the time to say all that I need to say about this, so I'm just going to move quickly. And then he starts talking about eunuchs. Some are made, some, there, are, there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. They're born that way, so they can't get married, right? There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That was, ha- that was in royal households, for example, the, the men who cared for the royal ladies would be castrated, so there was no fear of them doing something they weren't supposed to do sexually with, with the women. Some eunuchs have been made eunuchs by men. They can't get married. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, and here I think Jesus is speaking figuratively. <laughs> he uses a lot of figurative language, and sometimes in church history people took this literally. Uh, the great Bible scholar, scholar Origen, for example, castrated himself. But I think this was meant figuratively. There are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And what I want to say to you at the outset of this talk today is that this, this draws us back into what Jesus is always drawing us to. And that's the centrality of God's kingdom, the centrality of God's will, the centrality of God's heart, the centrality of what God is doing in the world. It is the kingdom that comes first. The kingdom is more important than getting married. And you see, a lot of uh, our society today will act like you're unfulfilled if you don't get married. You're inferior in some way if you get married. That's hogwash. The Lord Jesus was not married. The Savior of the world was single. And that's a completely legitimate calling. Most people, most Jews in Jesus' days believed that men had to get married. It was an obligation to be fruitful and fill the earth, and so they had to get married. Jesus says, no. There's something more important than you fulfilling that command. It's to live in the kingdom of God. And what I want to say to us at the outset, in everything we discuss today, in everything we discuss every week, (laughs) the most important thing is the kingdom of God. And what makes you whole as a person is not finding your significant other. What makes you whole as a person is being set on fire for God's kingdom. And your identity is grounded in that before everything else. And if your identity is settled as a kingdom person, everything else is just details. That's the center. Everything else is the periphery. I want to urge you in here, if you're single, if you're divorced, choose your life direction based on the kingdom. Do not choose your life direction based upon what society tells you looks like a fulfilling family life. God will give you the life he wants you to have. Seek the kingdom first and the righteousness of God and all the other things will be added to you. And that's a starting point for us. Now I want to to move us to our text where Jesus basically says, well he does say here at the end of of the 1 through 9, I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another 
commits adultery. Now, that seems pretty clear, but it's been debated uh, volumes and volumes of Christian literature written debating what this actually means, what Jesus is actually saying. He seems to say, don't get divorced unless it's for uh, adultery or sexual immorality, depending on how you define that, that first exception clause there. Here are the main traditional options. And today I have a real challenge, okay? I want to ask you to bear with me. Because I have a challenge. I try not to bore people with technical details on Sunday morning. I try to bore you with those details in classes, uh, but not on Sunday morning. But, you know, hopefully it's not boring generally, but I try to stay away from the technicalities on Sunday mornings. But I have to touch on some of this to preach this passage. So I'm going to just do my very best to navigate these waters. We'll go down deep for a minute, and then we'll come up, okay? Uh, hang on, okay? So, so there, are, there are four traditional options, maybe others, but, but when approaching this passage, sorry, this is a little bit small. I hope you can see it. Uh, there is what we called growing up the no exception view. And that means no divorce ever in your whole life, for any reason, whatever it is, okay? You don't ever get divorced. There is the, you can divorce, but only for adultery view. That's what I grew up in, number two there. There is, you can divorce for adultery and for abandonment. The Apostle Paul pretty clearly says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you're abandoned, you can remarry. So that's two reasons some people go for. And then there's the common secular view that's broad, broadly in the church now too, and that's that you can divorce for any reason. Doesn't matter. And then we could actually make probably six or eight of these if we went further, because you could add in when you can remarry. Some people say you can divorce for adultery, but you can't remarry. Some people say you can divorce for adultery, but you can remarry. So we could, we could keep going with that, but we'll just stop. Uh, that's enough for right now. Now, the way I came up is we, we held to number two up there. Okay, you can divorce only for adultery, only for sexual immorality. And we, that, that was our view, but we knew it created some problems, so we created loopholes to try to get around some of the difficulties with this. One of them was the before you were a Christian loophole, okay? Basically, it didn't matter what you did before you were a Christian. And this led us to extreme cases, okay? And this is what legalism is. I'm just going to give you an example of it, okay? I remember at times, Brother Terry's laughing because he remembers some of these these situations that, that we encountered together in Louisiana. There were people who were like, we were trying to bring to Christ, who had been previously married, and we said... We need to get them to get married, and then we can baptize them. Because whatever they do before their baptism doesn't count. (laughs) That's what we thought, to get around the rule as a loophole. The other loophole was uh, you can separate. A lot of people say this one. You can separate, but you can't divorce. So if, for example, you're, you're dealing with an abusive husband... Or wife, for that matter. But, but much more commonly, the physical abuse comes from the husband. And we say, well, you can separate, but you can't divorce. If you're living with a spouse who's doing great harm to your children, well, you can't divorce them, but you can't separate. Now, in, in the Scripture, at the time of Jesus, separation like that would have just, just meant divorce, pretty much. It, it, we, they didn't have those same kind of distinctions that, that we're making, but, but we make those distinctions today. It leaves you, though, with this question, okay? Why does Jesus care, why does God care, about adultery but nothing else? Why is it that only adultery is able to get us out of this bad situation? Why does God care more about 
a spouse committing adultery than he does about a spouse beating up a spouse. And that something seems off with that to us. And I want to say to you that maybe, maybe these kinds of legalistic loopholes we've been using should indicate to us that we've been coming at these passages in the wrong way. Maybe there's a different way to approach this altogether. Maybe there's a way to get the kingdom at the center of our attention. And it will open up different avenues for us in considering all of this. So let's look at what, what's stated here in verse 3. I don't have it all on the PowerPoint for you. So if you have your Bible, follow along, or you can use your phone. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The only way to really make more sense of this passage is to know something about the background. And let me just say it to you very simply and directly. This is technical legal language. And they understood it at that time, even though we don't many years later. There was a, a rabbi named Shammai. You've heard about this, maybe. And another rabbi named Hillel, and they had different schools of thought. The rabbi Shammai was the conservative. Hillel was the liberal. And the school of Hillel had taught that you can get divorced for any reason. It was all a debate about Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to put it up there for you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That some indecency literally could be translated a cause of sexual immorality, although it's debatable exactly what it means in this context. Okay? But that's where the debate lay about that some indecency. And Rabbi Hillel took that a cause of sexual immorality and basically did some, some interesting grammatical gymnastics with it and said, that means any cause. Anything you find that you don't like, you can divorce your wife. And that had become the prominent position in Jesus' day. That's what everybody believed. You know, not everybody, because the school of Shammai was still pushing back, but they were the, they were the fringe people. The broad majority said some indecency means anything. You can divorce for any reason. Notice this is directed to the man divorcing his wife. I'm going to say more about that in a second. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And you can go and read the rest of the context. It's not really relevant for, for our discussion right now. The point is, uh, Moses was allowing them, the, the law was allowing these men to give their wives, because of whatever that phrase meant, uh, some indecency, because of that, they could give their wives a certificate of divorce and send them away. And that's where the debate was. But really, you see, this, this any cause, that was the phrase they used. It was a technical legal term. So you can translate it like most translations have it, the top one there. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And basically, it seems like you're asking the question, is it lawful to, to get divorced ever? Is it lawful to ever get divorced? But you see, they already knew the answer to that question. That's assumed even in this discussion. It was lawful. And they say that down when you get to verse 7. They know Moses said you can divorce. That's not what they're asking about. Is it ever okay to get divorced? They're asking about this any cause. You see, I capitalized it at the end there. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're having a discussion using specific technical language that relates directly to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay, stay with me. I warned you this is a little bit technical. We're going to come up out of this in, in, in just a minute. By the way, I need to give credit here, just as a side note. The guy who's influenced me in understanding this is named David Instone Brewer. He does a better job than anybody I know of in addressing this passage. You will look at a good book, look him up. I'll be happy to put you in touch with it. But I'm following him and his argument here this morning. 
that, that technicality there, I, I uh, basically just took that from him. It is lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. That's the technical legal language, language that they're using. They're asking him how he understands Deuteronomy 24, basically. This is not a passage of, uh, give us the universal rule about divorce or remarriage that applies everywhere, at all times, in all places. They're saying, do you agree with the Hillel people? Or do you agree with the, the Shammai people about this any cause? And Jesus does take a side in that. He says, I agree with Shammai. We'll see in just a second. But he comes at it differently than anybody else does. There's an ongoing debate that Jesus steps into here. He's not addressing every situation. And let me say this. There are other causes in the Old Testament that are recognized as legitimate causes for divorce. I don't believe Jesus removed those causes. They were found in Exodus chapter 21. This is talking about a man who has a slave wife or his son has a slave wife. That brings up a whole other set of issues okay, that we cannot talk about this morning. But uh, the whole slavery issue is troubling. I know. I'm just not going to get into it right now. Uh, if this man takes another wife to himself, while he already has a slave wife, he shall not diminish his first wife's food, her clothing, or her marital rights, her, her sexual conjugal rights. And if he does not do these three things... For her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, she goes free. She, she can leave without consequence. She, there's no payment that's necessary if you don't do these three things for her. So what the, what the Jewish people came to, to believe was there were four causes for legitimate divorces. And every time there was a legitimate divorce, uh, remarriage was okay. And the four causes were marital unfaithfulness, and the failure to provide those three things that are listed in uh, Exodus chapter 21. Broadly, it's the husband must provide material support and physical affection for the wife. And if these things are completely neglected and abandoned, if they are uh, not uh, uh, valued and sought, then there can be a legitimate divorce that takes place. If you want more information on this, I would invite you to come to our class in two weeks, and we'll talk in more detail about this, okay? Now, the question we have was, is, was Jesus intending to remove these other three causes? We, you know, most of us, I think, from our background here would accept the first one, say adultery can end the marriage. What about these others? Well, basically, it's, it's neglect and abandonment. Well, if Jesus intended to remove them, the Apostle Paul did not get the memo. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul very clearly says, that if a spouse is abandoned by her unbelieving husband or, or his unbelieving wife, then the believer is no longer in bondage to the marriage situation previously. So, so there's, that's where you get the two causes that we talked about earlier. That, that's where that comes in. Um, I don't think Jesus meant to remove those. I think he meant to answer a very specific question about Deuteronomy 24 and, and take a side in that issue to say, no, it's not for anything. You can't just get divorced for any reason. It's a limited cause. It's the sexual immorality interpretation. That's the right interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. To, to really get this, though, we need to understand why God put these causes in place. All right? Why did God give these causes for divorce in the first place in the old law? In Exodus 21, he's defending the slave wife. Did you see that? This slave woman who might end up being, because this man takes him another wife and says, oh, forget you. I don't care about you anymore. God says, no, you won't leave her in that situation. 
God sees the slave woman and takes care of her. That's what, the, that's what those causes are given for. He's protecting the vulnerable. The same thing is true with Deuteronomy 24. It was the woman who was at a severe disadvantage in that society. Everything depended on the man. The woman was not educated. The woman was not the one who had social standing. And if they were not attached to a man, that's just the way the world worked back then, they were in big trouble. And so here's the thing. If a man divorced a woman and sent her out, either she had a living father or an older son who could care for her, or else she was destitute. At least quite possibly going to end up destitute. And the thing is, the way things worked, and I think this was generally true for most societies, not just the Jewish societies, that the man could go reclaim her like property at any time. So then no one would remarry her. No one else would remarry her because they might lose her at any point. The first husband could come and say, nope, she's mine, I want her back. What God did by, by saying, give her this certificate, is he said, you protect this woman. And when you give her the certificate, it means she's free to remarry other people. She can go out now. If you're going to get rid of her, that's okay. But she can go out, and she can find somebody else, and she can be married again. So he's protecting that woman. You can't go reclaim her again. And probably protecting her in other ways as well. This was God's heart. He was protecting the vulnerable women. What we have to ask then is, did in the New Testament, did God change his mind about that? We come to the New Testament, we say, well, God just got stricter. We got to toughen up because it's the New Testament now. But you see, his heart was always for the vulnerable. And this is what Jesus does. This gets into a hermeneutical issue. How do we approach interpretation of the scriptures as a whole? Jesus was always looking at the heart of the Old Testament and then fulfilling that, taking it further, but not just dismissing it. For example, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't even get angry. Because that's where murder comes from. You've heard it said, uh, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even lust. Because that's where adultery comes from. What does he do with the heart of these teachings? Does he get rid of God's concern for the vulnerable? I don't think so. I don't think that's ever what Jesus meant to do. When we interpret these passages, we need to be sure we come up with interpretation. These are difficult passages. I don't know. I'm still, I'm still learning and growing my own understanding, okay? But we need to come up with an interpretation that is in line with the heart of God. And I think a lot of people have been turned off by uh, these scriptures and they've known something's wrong because they've tried to be obedient to them but they've said this doesn't seem to be like God so a husband can beat his wife to a pulp and the wife goes to the church and the church says sorry you're stuck maybe you can rent an apartment and get away from him but you're, you're bound for the rest of your life to him that doesn't seem to fit the heart of God who was looking out for the vulnerable in the Old Testament. Do you see that? That's what we're trying to, trying to get at this morning. There are a lot more details to talk about, and, and I, I know that uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing it justice this morning. But we'll talk more in a couple weeks in a class setting if you're interested in, in going further. Okay, I want to look further at this text, and we'll uh, come to the conclusion. Uh, after they asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce, he answers them, verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus does when they ask him, is it lawful to do what everybody's doing and divorce for any reason? He says, let's go back to the heart of God and think about marriage. What was God doing in creation? He was saying a man and a woman should be joined together forever. And that's what God always wanted. What you're doing with divorce is dismissing God. And we cannot dismiss God from the equation of our marriages. What God has joined together. We need to understand that marriage is first of all a theological institution. Only secondarily is it a sociological institution. This is why it's not for us to define. This is not why we get to say it can be between a man and a man. Or a woman and a woman. Because it's first of all God's to define. Marriage is first of all a theological institution. God intimately cares about marriages. God joins people together. This is not something that we can cast aside. This is not something that we throw away like a piece of trash. We go down to the lawyer and say, hey, yeah, I think I'm done with that. That's not what marriage is. God joins people. That's what Jesus calls our attention to. So we take it very seriously. And we prioritize it as something wherein we see the very hand of God. It is not dispensable. It's not ours to define or manipulate. God's involved. Verses 7 through 9 then. They come back to him and say, okay, yeah, God did that in the beginning. But later on, Moses said, give a, give a certificate of divorce and send her away. What do you do with that, Jesus? And actually they say Moses commanded it. He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you. I love, by the way, I love that Jesus, when he's talking about Moses and the old law, he doesn't even include himself under it, all right? He says, Moses allowed you. It's just one of these little implicit moments where you recognize Jesus does not see himself as someone like everybody else. Moses gave you the law, not me. It was because of hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, there he is again, going back to the beginning. From the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, the passage we already read, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. But I want to get you to the heart of things here by looking at what Jesus says about hard hearts. You see, to really appreciate this passage, we have to realize what Jesus was doing in his ministry. What time it was in history. And what is, is stated to us here is that Moses allowed this. They said he commanded it. Jesus said, no, he allowed it. He allowed it for a reason, because your hearts were hard. Guess what? God wants to do something about the hard hearts. He doesn't want to just do something about bad marriages to, in order to get rid of them. He wants to do something about human hearts that are causing bad marriages. And this is the time we live in. We've shifted forward in the epics of history. And now is the time for something to be done about the hard hearts. See, this is, this is all throughout Matthew. Blessed are the pure in heart. Starting right out in Matthew chapter 5. Not the Pharisees' program of external purity, the pure in heart. Matthew 15, the Pharisees say you have to wash your hands. Jesus says your hands aren't what's making you dirty. <laughs> your hearts are what's making you dirty. That's where your sin's coming from. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 23. 
the Pharisees again. He's dealing with them. You're, you're like a, a whitewashed tomb. Everybody's de- decorated the outside, but they're, they're dead bones inside. You're like a dirty cup. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside's still filthy. This is Jesus' program of purity. It's cleansing hearts, softening hearts. This is what the prophets had prophesied. This is Ezekiel saying, God's going to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what we need in our marriages. Not a new rule or a new technicality that gets us out of it, but a new heart granted to us by the living Lord Jesus. This is the real hope for change in our world today. Yes, I believe that there are situations today in which divorce and remarriage is legitimate. I believe that they're broader than what I at one point believed. But I don't believe that's what Jesus wanted our focus to be on. I believe his focus, what he wants our focus to be on, is what God was doing in creation and what now is happening in the new creation. And it's about a genuine, renewed love, renewed hearts that make marriages different. You see, here's the problem in our discussions over the years. Christian discussions broadly, maybe you've been involved in them. Where we've talked about marriage and divorce, we've been more concerned about getting the rules right than we have been about getting God's heart right. In our discussions about divorce and remarriage, we've left out the kingdom of God. And instead of seeking the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, we've sought the rules and to figure it out just right in order to be able to get rid of our marriages when we possibly can at some times. And so you have situations where people grow hard-hearted towards each other, cold as ice towards each other, and in the church nobody cares as long as you don't get divorced. We have situations where, where one person just is waiting and hoping and praying that their spouse will commit adultery. And when they do, it's like they got the golden ticket. <laughs> now I can get out of this thing. I got, the, I got the exception. Instead, we should have been praying for the Lord Jesus to soften our hearts, to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, to make our marriages something different. That is what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to give us a new rule about divorce tighten the screws a little bit and send us on our way. He came to change the way we're living with each other in our church communities, in our broader family, even in our marriages, even when we feel like, oh man, what do I do about this? This is hopeless. What we need is resurrection. And that's possible in the kingdom of God. I want to say to you today that a resurrection of your marriage is possible. I know I'm talking to some of you who just don't feel like that's true. The leopard can't change its spots. But God could raise a leopard from the dead. God has already raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And he can raise marriages from the dead too. That doesn't mean it will be without work. You see, we have to receive this. We have to take, take this heart of love into ourselves. But God has been doing this for a long time. I was, in, I was in class with a guy. I've told you this before, but I was in class with a guy one time. I want to say he went to like six different counselors. I don't remember for sure. He and his wife. And they all told them they need to get a divorce. 
And finally, they said, okay, that's what we're going to do. They went to the divorce lawyer's office. He was a Christian. He said, okay, I'll do this, but I won't do it until y'all go home and pray about it. They said, all right. They went home and they prayed about it, and something happened to their hearts. And God saved their marriage. And he was in my class. I don't know how many years later it was, but he was in my class, bearing witness to the power of God to restore broken marriage. See, this is, this is about love, but not the romanticized love you hear about on the radio. That love is just waiting to get a divorce. <laughs> so it's, all about, it's all about you make me feel so great. Well, guess what? Married people, you can bear witness. Your wife or your husband doesn't always make you feel so great, do they? I can't even get an amen for that. <laughs> I, I know you're scared to amen. I know it. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife's gone, you don't count. <laughs> we know that. And when the feelings pass, what do we do then? This is about real agape love. Biblical love. Somebody said that uh, the reason Jesus said no divorce is that he also said love your enemies. It's funny, but it's true. <laughs> See, we don't just get to practice being Christians when we leave our house. We don't just get to drive to work and then turn love on. That's not the way love works. Love is a spiritual reality that God puts in our hearts, and it has to start emerging in our homes. I'm not saying if you're struggling in your marriage, you're not loving. Don't get me wrong. Marriage is just like... For most people, it is the primary testing ground for love because it's where all the veneers come down, all the hiding goes away, where you see all the dirtiness and nastiness, and you get to say, am I still going to be a person of love right here? And as God grants us love in our marriages and in our homes, it flows out to others around us. And it's really possible, even when we thought it's it's dead. Let me just close by giving you a few um, very small steps you can take right now. If you have felt like your marriage is dying or dead, and there's probably a spectrum, there's the, the one to the ten. Some of you are doing so well better than you've ever done. Praise God for that. You're going to need it at other times, but praise God for where you are now. Some of you are at the end of your rope right now. Some of you are in the middle. Wherever you are, think about how you can, you can use these steps. This is just what I think is a practical way to put on love in our homes. First of all, some of us just need to repent. And can I ask you just to think about that for a minute? If you've allowed thoughts and feelings to be harbored in your heart that are not of God, today as you come to receive the Lord Jesus at this table, do you need to repent? And after we repent, then we pray. And we say, Lord, you know that you are inviting me to do something I cannot do. But you can do it in me. And then we act. It's really pretty simple. We say, what is a loving thing to do? What is a loving thing to say? And we do and say that. I would encourage you that if you ever have an impulse towards kindness, towards your spouse. 
assume that it is the voice of God. If you're wrong, you haven't lost anything. But you might find you get better at recognizing the voice of God. If you have an impulse one day to send your wife flowers, don't wait until the next day. Assume God is telling you to do it. And see how that works out. Put it to the test and try it on. And then, finally, I would say, as we act, these really go together, we change our thoughts. And I think we don't even realize how much of a choice we have here. Our first and fundamental freedom is what we think about. And as married people, you see, we see our spouses more clearly than anyone else does. <laughs> and we can see both the good and the bad in ways that no one else does. And we get to choose what we take and put in the center of our vision. And I'd urge you to put good things at the center of your vision. Don't dwell on what's bad. Don't dwell on what's annoying. That's easy to do. Even the sinners do that. <laughs> That's just not what Christians are called to. You can see good things and dwell on good things. I want to leave you with these words from the song. Uh, uh, I did this last Last time I was talking about this, I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> but you know the song. Um, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leopard's spots and melt a heart of stone. That's what we're in on, even in our marriages. Can we just pause for a moment of quiet prayer? Lord, speak to us in the quiet right now, please. You know the burdens that have been carried into the building this morning. I pray that you will remove all guilt and all shame from those who have struggled in their marriages, from those who have been divorced. I pray you restore a heart of love right now that, that recognizes the goodness that we live with, the miracle of sharing life with others. Give us forgiveness, Lord, where we need to forgive each other. Teach us what the power of resurrection life looks like in our homes. And show us how to live forward into this, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.